I was once told a preacher's story, and to be honest, I've told it several times myself way back in the days. The story was told, let me tell you the moral first. The story was told to reinforce our theological straitjackets, to keep us in our traditional shackles. And it was all about safety first. The story went like this, that there was a woman on a boat that was going across the Great Lakes. And they really are Great Lakes if you've never been them. They're, they're amazing. And she looked about and she saw rocks under the surface of the water, but very close. She was quite concerned. She went to the captain and she said, do you know where all these rocks are? And he said, no. That did not make her happy. He said, I know where the safe channel is. Now, that's not a horrible story. That's a good story. There are certain times where we need to find a safe road and stick with it. This is our lane, and it works well, and we know there are no rocks under the surface. But I have to ask a question. Is it what Jesus said? Did he ever ask us to play it safe? Ever. I challenge you. Read the Gospels. Did he ever ask us to play it safe? This week, I was down in the bayous of Louisiana again. I've gone every year since Katrina. And in fact, Rita was still kind of pummeling them the first time I went. And I've gone every year. Uh, long stories there. And it got a little bit longer than I was expecting. So I couldn't make it back. And I told Cammie I want to cancel the flight. And I drove on into Texas. And you see, I'm, I don't play it safe. I stand out in Texas for some reason. I'm not really sure. Um, they're saying, what was that little guy? And, you know, where's the Lucky Charms? But I, I made it up, made it up to uh, uh, north of Abilene and spoke again and then drove yesterday, you know, um, 13 and a half hours. Uh, and, I, and people are going, oh, how do you? no, I'm not, I'm not here to play it safe. I'm not here to play it safe in any way. Now, it's not, I'm not going to be silly and endanger myself or endanger somebody else. But did Jesus ever deliver, ever seem to indicate he was delivering to us a faith, a church slash community that was so fragile that, oh my goodness, we got to bubble wrap this thing. We got to live as if our life was the back of a shampoo bottle. Do this action, repeat. You ever notice that on the back of a shampoo? You can get stuck in there for the rest of your life. Shampoo, rinse, repeat. Okay? Shampoo. And that's the way a lot of people do religion. Show up, do these actions, you're good for the week. Show up, do these actions, good for the week. Never change the actions. And as I told you a couple weeks ago, tradition will kill you because tradition is peer pressure from dead people. And we need to find a way out of that. Let's look at what scripture actually does say. Jesus talking to his, now look at his sales pitch here. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. This is the worst pre-battle speech ever. Really. If that's, if we're going to war in a human sense. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, as innocent as doves. By the way, that's, that shows up in my prayers a lot, uh, Albert. I'll say, all right, God, I don't know how I'm getting through the day, but this is what I need. I need to be as smart as a snake and as nice as a dove. And I, I tend toward the snake side, front, uh, but I, I'm working. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in church. The synagogues, 
On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. Those of you that were here for the retreat yesterday, understand more about that now. Do you know it? For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. It doesn't take too long to find at least a dozen of these warnings from Jesus and more from the other writers in the New Testament. Risk is built in to the Christian life. It is what we do. We love our enemy. That's very risky. Because you can love your enemy and they can turn on you and kill you. We feed the poor. We're, this church is very dedicated to the poor and the, the, um, those that are unprivileged or underprivileged. We work with them daily, and I'm so proud of you. But when you feed the poor, some people are going to take advantage of you. So it's a bit risky. Should we back up then? No. Put it at risk. Put everything at risk. If you try to be kind to people, some people will use you. In fact, let me just put it this way. We all want to live like Jesus, but if you live like Jesus, they very well may nail you to a tree. So, what does God require of us? And that will lead us to our parable of today. And remember what we're doing. We're doing two months of Advent, and the sermons are all based around the parable. And the parables are there to show us how everything has changed now that Jesus has come. It is not we have a world plus Jesus, but Jesus has changed everything about our, our past, our present, and our future. This is arguably one of the most difficult parables. I've never seen it used in a vacation Bible school. It, it causes arguments, a lot of arguments. And if you want to read them, you can. They're all over the place. The Bible, because the Bible was not written, by the way, with punctuation and paragraphs, it can be hard when you're reading the original manuscripts to figure out where one stops and where another begins. But let's tackle it anyway. Luke 16, 1 through 9. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what does this say here about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what, am I, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig it. I'm ashamed to beg. I'm putting that on my business cards. I'm strong enough to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, this is so important, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. I'm assuming he did this one at a time, because if they were in a group, there'd be room for fudging numbers. A thousand bushels of wheat. He, he replied, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. In other words, we, we ought to be at least as smart as non-Christians. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Can you see now why we don't use this one at VBS? This is, now the manager was a real mess 
And so when he called in and realized he was about to lose his job, he changed all the books and changed all the numbers. And the manager goes, his boss goes, well, that's really smart. This is not self-explanatory. And the parable's right in the middle of two favorites. It's, it's between the one prodigal son and the loving father. Oh, we like that one. And then a rich man and Lazarus. Oh, we like that one too. And this one's right in the middle. It's there for a reason. Here we have a man who has not been managing his boss's funds well. He's been sloppy about recording who owes what and sloppy about what was collected. He's a bad manager. Now, notice in verse 1 that mismanaging the possessions of the master was being called wasting them. That's really important. The manager was not putting them at risk. He was not using them. And because of this, he was letting money and goods just sit there. Just there. And suddenly the manager realizes that not only has he mismanaged his boss's stuff, he has mismanaged his life. Where are his friends? When he loses his job, who's going to welcome him into his house? Who's going to feed him? Nobody likes him. And he realizes he's mismanaged his life. If he loses his, his job, he's on the street. He's a beggar. And here's we have to, where we have to pause and look at his reality and our own. Is this situation in Luke 16 a perfect situation? No. Can he find a perfect solution? No. No, you can't. At that stage, you've got to do what you can with what you've got and hope for the best. It's risky. Is there a way to make up for all the errors he's made quickly? No, there isn't. So what does he have to do? That eternal question. And the questions in, the, in, in Genesis are amazing to me. God looking at Adam and Eve in the garden and saying, where are you? Oh my goodness, that's a weighty question. But one of my favorites is still Moses on Mount Sinai. Been head of sheep Sinai division for 40 years. He hasn't thought about doing much of anything. He's an 80-year-old who stands around sheep, for goodness sake. And God says, I need you to go into Egypt and overthrow the nation and remove all my people and bring them back here. Moses doesn't think this is a good idea. Moses makes one, one excuse after another, challenging God, saying, I, don't, I can't talk well, I don't know your name. They want, just on and on. And finally, God says, what do you have in your hand? Boom. That's it. If God had created a mic, he could have dropped it then. What do you have? I have no interest in what you could do if your life had been better to this point. I have no interest in what you could do if you won the lottery. I just, I don't. What I'm concerned about is what are you doing with what you've already got? You might be saying, but this is all I have. I ruined my life. I've messed it up. I've, uh, the, the, the situation that I'm in, it's really awful. I'm unable to serve. And God is going, no, no. What do you have? It's not a perfect situation. I had a lady talk to me uh, several months ago. And she said, God's already on plan D for her life. Because A, B, and C all died. And I just smiled. I, wanted, I didn't want to try to one-up her. But he's on double Z point two on me. And yet he can take what you've got. That whole fish story of the fish and the bread and feeding the 5,000 is not about making stuff out of nothing. 
It's all about bring them what you got and let God do it. Put it at risk. That little boy with the sandwich, the only one whose mama loved him enough to pack a lunch. That kid, whether he wanted to or not, was taking a risk. There's no indication he willingly trotted up there and said, here, take my food. I think Jesus' posse grabbed him and just said, we're taking the food. There was risk. Jesus said, line them up. That was risky. We don't have enough to line up anybody. But um, put it at risk. Give it to God. See what God can do. Talking to these teens up in North Texas, they're in the middle of nowhere. Let me, oh my goodness. If you've ever been north of Abilene, I see why you're here today. <clears throat> as soon as you find you're free to go, go. But they're there. They happen to like it. But they were wanting me to talk about the value of community, of linking together with each other. And one of the things I told them is nobody gets the gifts they want. And nobody gets all the gifts. But everybody gets at least one. And when we're together, we can do stuff. But you know what's risky about this is that what if we get together and that guy doesn't do his part? It's a risk. You might be left there standing. You might be left out of pocket, embarrassed. Yes. You might be beaten in the churches. And Jesus would look at you and say, so what's your point? Go. Do it. Put it at risk. That's why right now, by the way, sitting around and hoping for the best it, or sitting around and mourning your past or sitting around and saying, oh, I'm in a horrible situation is not God's plan for your life. God's plan is take what you've got and put it at risk for God. Everything. And certainly he did it. That, we need to go to a different parable now. Matthew 25. Again, it'll be, and I, I, whenever I see the word again, sometimes when Jesus is saying it, I sometimes wonder if he wasn't leaning forward looking at that and going, one more time. Because doesn't he have to do that to us? Well, it certainly does to me. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag. Each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gave five, gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the one who'd received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Settled accounts. Yeah, that day is coming. Uh, the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you, gave me, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Perfect situation? No. The other guy's got five. The other guy's got two. He, did, he was working already in a deficit. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. In other words, a conqueror. So I was afraid, went out and hid your gold in the ground. See? 
Here is what belongs to you. You think you know what this means, but hang in there. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that our harvest, where I have not sown and gathered, where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with entrance. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, for they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a hard one. Most of us know this parable, and we were taught a definition, an interpretation, rather, of the parable, and it was wrong. God doesn't ever ask you to make him money. He doesn't ever ask you to, if I show up at a church and it's got 300 members, bring it to 600. Well, that would be very nice, but that's not my job. I remember when I first moved up to Michigan, and the elders there were mainly businessmen, so they had businessmen ideas. They're great guys, and many of them, are, well, all of them are still my friends to this day. And I'd only been there six or eight months, and they said, Patrick, we would like for you to do a five-year plan for us. I looked at them, I said, really? There's something you see when you look at me and say, that man has a five-year plan. <clears throat> they said, well, no, no, it's, it's, uh, so you could do metrics. I said, I, I don't do metrics. I live in the U.S. now. We don't do. And they're going, no, no, <clears throat> no, no. U.S. went metric. Did you know that? That was a hard week. That, that, was in the early, that was in the early 70s. The Congress passed a law. Everybody changed. And at the end of the week, forget it. We're done. No, that's not what they meant. They said, like, in two years, we want to have this many members. And then in four years, we, and I looked at them and I said, I can't do that. And they said, well, we'll help you. I said, no, no, philosophically, I'm opposed. And they said, why? I said, first of all, never outplan the Holy Spirit. Let him do what he's going to do. Move where he moves, when he moves, and that's not going to be on your timeline. Two, if I do my job, we might have 30 people coming to church in five years. That, that was not what they were looking for. <clears throat> but they got it. If you do your job before Jesus, you're putting things at risk. You are risking. This man that brought back the one wouldn't risk it. He wanted to hand back to God exactly what he'd been handed to us. And in churches, we tend to do that. The faith once received, we better polish that thing. We better bubble wrap it. We better circle it with people to keep sure nobody ever changes anything here so that when we get to heaven, we can say, untouched. And God says, don't you dare. Which of the prophets left things as they were? Which of the apostles left things as they were? They moved it forward. And even if they moved it forward into different directions, like in Acts 15, when one side of the church felt this very strongly about these laws, and another side felt very strongly about all the laws, so they go to the mother church, and there's James, a brother of Jesus. There are the apostles, and they all listen to both sides, and they refuse to make a decision. They just tell each other, love each other, for it seemed good, the scripture says, to the Holy Spirit and to us not to make it harder than it has to be. Stay sexually clean. Don't act like a pagan. They let it move forward. They let it change. They let it be a different thing here than it was over there. They put the gospel of Christ to risk. And we are here benefiting 
from that to this day. He never, ever asked us to keep it safe. We were told this parable meant that we'd, make, we'd better make more disciples and make more congregations. I can even remember they'd do those sermons and then they'd sing a song called, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? When at evening the sun goeth down. It's a good song, by the way. But once, if the whole sermon and service is geared toward paranoia, it's not a happy song. Because we have confused numbers and seats in pews and numbers in a budget with pleasing God. That's not it. Put it at risk. Put it at risk. Let it go where the Lord wants it to go. We always, you know, do more for God or else. No, no. Life doesn't give you any guarantees, does it? Some of you, back around 2008, found that your retirement plan was gone. It was government guaranteed. It was your business guaranteed, and then it went away. My, my father talked about his, uh, his IRA had uh, gone away. He said, I think the number's the same, but I believe it's in pesos now. <laughs> and it was terrifying for him. And I said, Dad, we won't let you be hungry. We'll take care of you. And he appreciated that, but he didn't want that, obviously. Investments are not safe, are they? And, and what you buy is not safe. God didn't ask if it was safe. Put it out there. Be risky. My wife is a sweet and wonderful woman. You know her and you know that. I asked her to read a book years and years ago. Whenever we found out our second child was a boy, and boys are different. You know, I remember she used to like to chase wee Kara around the house and tickle her, and Kara would run, and it was a fun thing. Duncan starts to be able to do that. He's a toddler, but he can run. So she starts chasing him to tickle him. He takes about two steps, looks back at her, and leaps, wraps himself around her to wrestle her to the ground. She walks in with a Duncan octopus wrapped around her and said, boys are different. I went, yes, they are. <laughs> Years later, we're in West Virginia living on quite a slope. I, I call it a mountain. My wife's from Colorado. She says it isn't. But it was quite the drop-off. And snow had come. She said, Patrick, Patrick, come look at what your son is doing. It's my son. All right, fair enough. So we already know he's not healing the sick. Uh, there, there's, something, there's something bad. So I go out, and, and this wee boy has got a sled, and he's pointing it down the mountain. It's 1,100 feet down this mountain. And she goes, I stood there and went, huh? She goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to watch him. <laughs> she said, aren't you going to stop him? I said, the worst thing you could do is stop him. But what if he breaks a leg? There are doctors at the bottom of the hill. She read a book called Wild at Heart that I gave her. Some of you have read it by John Eldridge. And from that day on, she understood. And she never says to me, and she never said to him, even as he went into the Marine Corps, she doesn't say, be safe. She says, be dangerous. Be dangerous. One of my great friends, uh, our, our brother Terry Rush, said he wanted to live his life so that every morning when he wakes up, the devil goes, uh-oh, he's awake. Yep, risky, put it at risk. The man who buried the talent and gave it back clean and pristine, just as he 
practice as it was when he got it was a grave disappointment to God. When somebody tells me we need to restore the New Testament church, I'll say, I ask them which one, because they're all very different, extremely different. And then I'll ask them, who told you to do that? Instead, you were told, love God, love each other, take this story forward, risk it. See where it goes. Sometimes I, I think of that, that wee book we read our children. Oh, the places you will go if you let God do it. But here's the thing. You can't wait for the perfect. You can't say, you know, as soon as we get to... No, no. You cannot let great be the enemy of the good. Do you know what I mean by that? I could do great things if I had this or if we were in this situation. No, I'm, I'm not interested. Let's do the good. What good can you do with what you've got right now? Josh, and I, Josh Graves and I, when we preached together in Michigan, would give challenges to our church. And one time we, we said, we want you to take $17 and put it at risk this week. Serve somebody. Be at risk. And people would talk about how they drove by somebody holding one of those signs that says, do your taxes here, or you know, we pay for gold, or whatever that was. And the whole family, you know, they stopped the car and they said, are you hungry? And the guy goes, well, I got to work. They said, do you, what fast food do you like? And the guy goes, well, I got to work. And they said, oh, if you could. Well, and he told them. And so they drove off, came back with it, had a picnic by the side of the road, and the dad held the sign. Put it at risk. After that, we baptized 26 people. No, we didn't. That's a lie. I have no idea if we impacted that person's life at all. But we changed the little people in that, in that car. One of our, our men was getting his car washed and it was a Saturday and he realized he hadn't done the $17. So he, uh, he sat there for a bit and he saw one of the ladies that was polishing down the cars. And he went over and he was trying to remember the, the script <laughs> and he handed her $20. Now, they'd already, he'd already paid for the wash. He handed her $20 and she looked at him and he goes, you, you've already paid. And he goes, no, no, this is for you. God loves you, and he wants you to know he's not forgotten you. And she collapsed. He picked her up and helped her to a bench, sobbing. She had said just that morning, she said over her kitchen sink, looking outside the window, said, I don't think God knows I'm alive. Put at risk. Now, some people gave money to people, and they spent it on alcohol, and they spent it on whatever. Who cares? Put it at risk. Put your time at risk. I walk in and speak to groups, and they're germy. They cough, and they blow their nose, and then they hug me and tell me how sick they've been. <laughs> Even had one lady this week say, now I know you're not a hugger, but I am, and you're going to get hugged. And I'm thinking, muggers say exactly that. <laughs> that is what people, before you're mugged, that's what they say. And she hugged me. I went home and washed the brethren off and just went to go to work. The manager in Luke 16 just went to work to do what he could with what he had. And guess what? By lowering the debts of those who owed, by showing them kindness and grace, he created goodwill for the master. And goodwill for himself. All of a sudden, he had friends. And his master had more friends. I love Kroger, but especially now with the click carts that they, they, they run you over. I pay sometimes. I know I'm going to pay more. I'll go to Publix. Why? 
they're going to smile at me and be nice to me. They, they even offered to take this stuff out to the car, but I never buy that much. I got a loaf of bread. The guy goes, you want me to carry that for you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Frankly, my keys are a little heavy. Carry that too. <laughs> but it creates goodwill, doesn't it? All right, I, I have to confess my sins. There's not an item on a Chick-fil-A menu that I like. So therefore, I might not be a Christian. I'm aware of this. I think I've only thought about, I'd like, I want to try Chick-fil-A twice in my life, and it was on a Sunday, so God protected me. <clears throat> but I love going in with other people because they have been trained to be kind. You know what I'm seeing, what I'm saying here? The, the dishonest manager did the right thing by just, he already had the dishonesty in his life. Now what he had to do was find a way to create goodwill for his master. And by doing so, God looked at that and smiled. Had he run, he'd been caught and tossed into prison. If the boss decided he'd been fired, he would have starved in the street because he didn't care for people. But now, if the boss decided to fire him, people out there would be saying, hey, come on in. You are good to us. We'll remember this. We will not always succeed when we take what God gives us and puts it at risk. I don't want you to pull them down. I don't want you to stop doing it. But I walk into many places or I'll see it on signs where you know, I know the plans I have for you to bless you. It comes right out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah never had a happy day in his life. Not one. He was, he was miserably treated all of his life and when near the end of his life, he begged to stay in Jerusalem, they forced him. They took him by force to Egypt. And somewhere along the way, he must have died because he disappears. He's blessed, but God didn't say you'd be blessed here. Life, birth, renewal from the table, remember that? He gave it to Ezekiel. Do what I, do, what I tell you to do and you'll be blessed. Have you ever read Ezekiel? I don't think he was okay. There was something wrong with Ezekiel's brain. It didn't get better, but God blessed him. And remember when Elijah hid in the cave? I'm the only one you've got left, God. we got to protect me. I'm the guy. you got to protect me. And God said, get out of the cave. And not only did he get him out of the cave, he sent him right into the path of Ahab and Jezebel. Put it at risk, buddy. I think of... Colonel Chesty Puller, brother, most um, famous Marine of all time, went from Buck Private to being uh, commander of all of them, a commandant. He was a, I'm not going to be able to quote Chesty, am I here, brother? But once in Korea, when he was asked, he told his men to get up and they were going to go into an area where everybody else had been wiped out. He looked him in the eyes and smiled, and I will not say exactly what he said, but it ended with, did you want to live forever? That's absurd. So let's do it here. And I think of that a lot. I'm not going to live forever. Let's put this at risk. Let's give it a go. God did not ask us to protect and polish the faith. For the longest time, the Catholic Church wouldn't even let you touch the host, the bread, with your own hands because you might, you might not handle it with proper cleanliness. And some churches won't let you speak unless your theology is perfectly in line with whatever they're polishing. Or unless you're professional, because they don't want somebody to get up here and read poorly or sing poorly or the like. 
but by polishing the faith, they weaken it. And the unperfect and the less than perfect deeds out the door, still looking for Jesus, still looking for grace. By the way, Alcoholics Anonymous knows this well. They know that those who come into the program are broken, and the only way they come is broken. And they have a 12-step program, and steps 8 and 9 deal with this. 8, make a list of the, all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. How dangerous is that? Oh my goodness. That can put you right into a lawsuit. It can put you into being screamed at. Number 9, make direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Mark, would you bring your group back up? And please remember, at 11, we want to start here with Richard Lefevre. I keep wanting to say Lefebvre because I, I took French in high school and I hate wasting it. But um, <laughs> he's Barb's older brother, favorite brother, only brother. But his story is compelling. And so I want to give time here for him to be able to move things around. And so you can get classes upstairs or be here to hear that story. Would you please stand? We cannot undo what we've already done. I cannot undo all of the mistakes and sins I have done. Some will never love Jesus because of the way I treated them. That's a burden I bear every day. I, I put burdens on them, and they'll never love Jesus because they equate me with him. And, but just like you, God takes the broken pieces of our lives and he makes beautiful stained glass windows that tell his story that his light can shine through because even broken crayons can still color a picture. Let us not protect the faith. Let's risk it by living it.